Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by author and movie producer, Tim Totoro. Tim has countless stories from working on the road for 13 years. He has done things like run Oprah Winfrey's long-form movie and TV unit. He's worked on several movies, including the movie Jackass. So we're going to be talking to him about his experience and any current and upcoming projects that he that he has tim thank you so much for joining me today my pleasure thanks for taking the time i appreciate it why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit of background about yourself well i i started working in entertainment as a uh, recording uh, in a recording studio as a tape op i was a music student i was a drummer as a kid in elementary and high school and I thought I wanted to do that for a living. And I started as a musician in college. And one of the requirements was we had to take a recording engineering class to understand how it worked. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever encountered. And that led to me doing an internship with a, a drummer who was one of the founding members of a band called Berlin, which then led to me working for a record label who was one of my clients. And then um, I got a degree in advertising. I did that all while I was going to school. And I got my degree. I got a degree in advertising. I wanted to work in marketing. So I got a job at a studio working at Columbia and TriStar Pictures for an ad agency. And then um, I just decided I wanted to work in, back in production, get closer to the making of movies. And I took a job as a PA on a TV show called Dream On for HBO. And that just led me into finance and logistics. And I ran physical production for Oprah Winfrey in the movies and TV unit here in LA. I did have anything to do with the show. I just did TV movies and, and, and features. And then that led to a freelance career. And then and now I'm a CFO, have been for 11 years. And I have about a half dozen clients who make a lot of TV movies. We'll probably do 10 to 12 of them a year for Lifetime and Hallmark. And then I have other clients who do um, independent features. So it kind of runs the gamut. And I've had, I'm one of those sort of oddballs who's had a little bit of feature, television, commercials, kind of all over the place, production kind of background. Well, tell us about movie investments. Why do clients settle for lousy movie investments when they, they wouldn't in any other type of investment? Well, I think it's because of the glamour because they can sit around the dinner table and tell their friends that they're invested in pictures and they can sort of gloat about things that are interesting as opposed to just you know near normal bond investment or buying stock in a company everybody else can get invested in. And it just feels glamorous. I'm, I'm not sure it is, you know, working in film production is it's hard work and working in finance is really hard work. In fact, I was, I was recently talking to, to uh, an investor about the idea that if you're going to invest in movies, movie investment or finding money for movies is really a cash flow and a timing problem, right? When we go into making a movie, whether it's a feature or it's a TV movie, whatever it is. TV shows even, we know how much money the network's gonna pay us, we know how much a foreign distributor is gonna pay us, and we know how much we're gonna collect from some kind of tax incentive, depending on where we're working. We take all those three pieces, pull them together, 
the network pays on a schedule, foreign distributor pays on a schedule, and then the tax credits pay on a schedule. And that could be anywhere from a few weeks to as much as a year and a half or two years. So we know how much money we're going to make going in. We just need to borrow money to cover the cash flow gap because we need most of it in the first three to five months of making a picture, but we're not going to collect more than 40% or 60% of it for as much as 18 months. So really film investing is about the idea of how do you get cash today that you're going to pay back and receive in some time in the future. And that future could be anywhere from 120 days to as much as 18 months. And that's, that is the, that is the job every CFO in Hollywood, like myself, has with a bank, with investors, with private equity, with bonds, however you do it, that's the conversation. The investment that I often hear people getting involved in is the idea of contribute your cash. We'll run the festival circuit. We're going to be huge. Harvey Weinstein's going to buy our movie for 10 times multiples, and we're all going to get rich. And we all know what happened to Harvey Weinstein, and I don't know anybody who's ever really made money in that model. So if you're confronted with those kind of models, that's not how real filmmaking is made. That's not how real movies are financed. That is a con, and that con is designed to accelerate the career of the filmmakers you're working with, if they even have a career, or it's designed to pocket your money and steal from you. There are a few examples, I will say with a caveat, that once in a while there are real filmmakers in the form of Robert Duvall did a movie called Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges, and that was a legitimate kind of an enterprise that was very similar to what I described that could be a con, but those are one in a million. They don't happen very often, so... I always say, be careful. That's not, those kinds of investments aren't really an investment. It's a gamble. Well, give us one of your favorite road stories. You got count, countless of them, I know. <laughs> one of my favorite road stories. Wow. That's, you know, we've got tons of them. One, I guess the, the one that always made me laugh the most was, you know, we're on, we're, we're doing Jackass and there was a sequence in the movie and it wound up in the first one. And I, I, now remind you, mind you, I, I'm a square peg in a round hole, right? I'm a physical logistics guy working with the Jackass crew. I'm a guy who made um, a bunch of movies for Oprah Winfrey at a background in the feature game. And then all of a sudden I'm on the road with the guys in Jackass who were made famous by the MTV show. And now they were going to go make this feature. And I just remember there was an argument on, it wasn't an argument, it was a debate of who was going to do the, the last sequence in the movie. And the last sequence in the movie was a gag with a radiologist where Ryan Dunn, who wound up doing the piece, it was supposed to be Steve-O who was going to do it, where they take a model uh, matchbox car, they, they put it in their butt, and then they go into the doctor and say to the radiologist and say, I got abdominal pain. I can't figure out why. He takes an x-ray. He sees there's a, a, a matchbox car inside him. And... The, the, the funniest part about that story isn't the actual sequence that wound up on the screen. The funniest part was Steve-O agreeing to do it and then realizing what he was going to have to do and then realizing that he was going to have to explain to his father, how it, who was a doctor, how exactly that whole thing went down. And he's like, I can't do it. I can't tell my dad what I just did. I'm not doing it. And that's how Ryan Dunn wound up being the character of the Jackass crew who wound up doing the part. But sitting there watching these two guys and all the other Jackass crew and the cast get on Steve-O and then Ryan Dunn finally taking over was absolutely hilarious. And 
I mean, it just, it doesn't come across in the movie, but it's, it was, it was two or three days of Steve-O coming to the conclusion that he, there was no way he was ever going to be able to explain to his father what he was doing with his time. And that, that to me was probably one of the funniest things I've ever encountered. Well, let's talk about what investors want to know if you're going to be asking them to borrow money or if you're going to be asking somebody to buy your movie, what is the most important things that they're going to want to know before they invest? Well, there's kind of two, there's three buckets of film investments, right? And the buckets are private equity, where you go to some, I call him the bored rich guy, who's going to give you a bunch of money to make a movie and they're going to be invested and they're going to be able to talk to their friends around the dinner table about how they're in pictures, right? And those people do exist. And the other one, the next one is, uh, you know, sort of your traditional banking environments, right? Like, and there's only a couple of banks that do it who understand our business. You can't walk into Chase and say, hey, I want to borrow money against some paper I have from a distributor in, in, in Latvia who's going to give me 5,000 bucks. And I got a whole bunch of this. That's just factoring accounts receivable. Chase doesn't understand how to do that. But there's a couple of banks in Hollywood who do. So we borrow from them. And then we borrow from other kinds of uh, private equity that are essentially hard money lenders. They're people, they are lenders who lend at a high multiple or a high interest rate, and they will loan you some small percentage of what the, um, you're going to, you could conceivably make, and they'll close that gap. It's typically called gap financing, and, and, or it could be tax credit financing. And every one of those, except the board rich guy, they want to know how much you need to spend, when you're going to spend it, when you're going to get the money to pay it back. Right, that's the important thing. And typically that when you're gonna get paid back is quantified in some kind of distribution agreement. And that's essentially what we do as a CFO is we factor distribution papers. So we take distribution agreements from the different territories or the distributors or the network or the, where, whoever we're getting it from. And we go to a bank and we say, we have X million dollars worth of receivables coming in anywhere from six months to a year and a half, depending on that contract maybe sometimes even less, sometimes maybe it's six weeks. But nonetheless, we have some period of time and they want to know when they're going to get paid back. And I think that's, that's an important conversation you have to have. You have to have a budget, you have to have a cash flow, and you have to have a realistic explanation of how your money is going to be returned. And that's the biggest mistake that the bored rich guy makes in getting involved in movie investments is they don't actually have any cash coming in. There's no prospect. There's no agreement. They've never made a sale. The producers have never made a sale to anybody in the world. If that's an investment you're looking at, that's not a real movie investment. I don't know a single producer in Hollywood who spends a dime not knowing where their money's going to come from. And, you know, that's, that is a, I've seen packages like that and, and they're terrible investments. They happen, but everything we're doing is we have to explain to the people we're borrowing money from, like anybody else, we have to explain where that money in the end is going to get paid back. And if you don't have an answer for that, you're not going to find money from anyone who is serious in this business. And there are plenty of serious lenders who will loan money against real distribution paper. So it begins with how much money you're going to spend and how you're going to make it back. And those are the questions we have to answer. And if I can't answer that for the money guys, they're just going to pass. They're going to say, thank you. Good luck. Well, let's talk about the changes that you've seen in film production in the past 10 years and where do you see film production going in the future? The changes, so until 
I'm going to leave the pandemic out of it, right? Because the pandemic just put everything on hold. So the process of actually making movies and movies and television are made identically. They're no different. The difference is the exhibition method. You're not going to put it on a screen. You're going to put it on a TV set. And in television, usually budgets are smaller. Not always, but they often are. And you're shooting a lot more material. So you might shoot a page or two in a feature schedule, and you might shoot eight or nine pages on a TV schedule, and sometimes even more if you're on a really tight TV schedule. And the people who make one-hour drama work really hard. Those people work long days, and it's just a, it's a building process, right? You're building, a, I like to liken it to a block wall. Uh, there's three phases of principle, which are photography, which is you're going to be in prep where that's where you're laying the foundation for how you're going to manufacture bricks. And then the actual shooting is where you manufacture the bricks and post is where you build the wall. You put it all together with mortar and you build this actual final wall and it's finished. So it, the process of actually building a movie and putting together the pieces that honestly hasn't changed in probably close to 80 years. It certainly hasn't changed in my career and that's been going on for a long time at least 35 years. What has changed is technology has streamlined a lot of those processes. So we don't use, we don't shoot on film anymore, by and large. We don't cut on film and editorial. We used to cut on, on actual uh, picture stock. Uh, that doesn't happen. We used to cut on a moviola. It was laborious and slow, and there were 11 people, and they probably comprised about five or 600 square feet of storage and just place to store the junk that we make in the process of editorial. All of that's gone. It now fits on a drive. You can stick in a briefcase and walk around an entire movie, like a million feet of film, the, the, the equivalent of a million feet of film, which is, you know, a big movie would shoot a million feet. Your average movie would shoot 120,000 feet of film. That all fits on a two or four terabyte drive now. So, you know, the technology has streamlined it. It's made it more efficient. It's made it less expensive. All of that. I mean, I've, I've been seeing budgets for since 1992 and the cost of, post-production has actually come down over the course of those years and not gone up where everything else has gone up. So there's a lot of streamlining that has happened. Until a couple of years ago, until The Mandalorian came along, and actually it kind of came along a little bit earlier than that. When we used to shoot cars driving down the road, it used to be we would put them on a trailer and drive them around the, the road, drive them around the neighborhood with, you know, a process trailer and a picture car and all the rest of it. We don't do that so much anymore. You park it somewhere and you go out and you shoot plates of what road you want to drive down and you line up a whole bunch of projection screens outside the car and you put actors inside the car, you light them, and then you just play back that video you just shot driving down whatever road you want them to be driving down. So the screens on the outside, the process has changed where we actually physically used to do it. Now we're just using screens and projecting video or projecting something that you shot elsewhere. You can augment that with CGI which that's obviously profoundly changed how movies get made and what we see. It's almost like watching cartoons anymore with people in them, but you know, so much of it is painted and actually drawn rather than acted or performed or built or physical sets. Like you go watch Saving Private Ryan, that is almost entirely, if not entirely, physical location. There's no, the explosions, the sets, all of it, it's physical. That was not that long ago, it was 20 years ago. So a lot of that, hasn't ha, hasn't really changed but what is starting to change in the mandalorian i alluded to it a second ago is a move is a tv show that was all shot in one location it looks like it was shot all over the world and the way the reason that's able to happen is because of cgi 
And also because of the screens that now a new technology has come along where you set up actors shooting into a screen with, with light in one direction, you don't have to turn around anymore. You can just turn a light on, turn a light off, change the background, augment it with a little CGI, and you're not spending the time to tear down the lighting and the actual uh, background and the, the set dressing and all the rest of it, the props and all the junk that goes into a movie set. You don't have to do that anymore. You can do it with screens and CGI now where you're only having to really actually physically build or uh, design something that's within the proximity of where an actor is moving so that you don't have to paint around the outside of their movement. So that has changed. And I don't see that becoming less common. I think I see that becoming more common. And, it's be, and, the, and the shows we're seeing are less like a cartoon where we're drawing every single frame and we're actually working a, a lot more practically. And that I think is, is going to accelerate. And we think we're going to see a lot more of that in filmmaking in the future. And it's going to, it's going to drive down costs just because you don't have to shoot as many days. The cost of shooting days is really where the, the, the predominance of the expense of making movies is in the number of days you shoot. So it's, it's changed dramatically in the past few years. Prior to that, it hadn't changed in probably close to 70 or 80 years. I know you mentioned in your bio that you lived and worked on the road for countless years. Yeah. Tell us the best and worst part of doing that. Well, the best part was I got to meet people that I would not have met. I got to stand in architecture, go to cities, scout locations, and do all of the things that I wanted to do as a 20-year-old. I, I didn't get married until I was nearly 40, and I didn't have a child. I didn't have a family until I was 45, and that was intentional. I intended to spend my life on the road and I intended to live overseas. I wanted to work anywhere I could get. And I did exactly that. And I did it for about 16 years. And the fun part of it was I was never home. I was seeing cultures. I was meeting people. I was immersed in places where most people go on a vacation for a couple of weeks to Pittsburgh, let's say. I mean, that's not really a vacation destination, but whatever. Pittsburgh, New York, North Carolina, Paris, Norway, London, uh, Tokyo, uh, the, all, the, all of these are places I've worked and shot. And not only did I just go there and visit it for a couple of days, I actually got to live there for weeks on end. And in some cases, as much as a year, I lived in Prague for a year and almost a year, about 11 months. And it's, it's an amazing experience. And I wouldn't change that for the world. The downside is, you know, I was flying back, actually I was flying back from Prague on my, my flight back from Christmas. And I was sitting there, I pulled out a calendar and I was circling the dates of my, that my friends had lived in my house. I, had, I owned a house in, in, in LA and I really called LA my home the entire time I was traveling. And I was circled the weeks my friends lived in my house and I circled the friends I, the weeks I lived in my house. And I counted them up and I'm like, my friends have lived in my house more than I have. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? So, you know, the downside is you're away all the time and you don't really, it, it's hard to make friends. Film production is a, um, is a young person's business. I'm in my 50s. Everybody I came up with, they all retired. They all left the business. So I don't really have friends that are, you know, 20-year-old friends. I still have friends from production, but they don't work in production anymore. They work in other jobs. They work in other fields. And most of them up and left. So um, there's a certain amount of, of excitement when you're young that's great and meeting people and seeing cultures and being immersed in it that is amazing. I wouldn't trade it for the world. The downside of that is... The friends who I made at home in LA, 
they all went on and had families. Their kids are in their twenties. My kid's 10. Um, you know, and those people have moved on and met other friends and got closer with their new friends where I'm not as big a part of their life as I used to be when I was in my twenties, before I started traveling in my mid, my late to my late twenties, early thirties. So, you know, that's the downside. You give up a certain amount of connection with people when you spend time on the road, especially making movies. Cause when you're making a movie, you're up at six o'clock or earlier in the morning and you're going to bed at midnight, one or two o'clock. You're working 18 to 20 hours every single day it, and while you're in from prep until you deliver a movie, until you finish shooting it and certainly a little bit in, in wrap and then post it slows down. But the point is you really don't have time to maintain relationships and the relationships you do make are mostly production people and those jobs are transient. You know, you'll work on a movie you'll meet someone, you become really close, really tight friends because you spend a lot of time with them every day. You're with those people for 16, 18 hours. You make close friends and then you go away, do a couple more movies. You come back, you're like, oh my God, you're on this one. What are you doing? You're doing the same thing. What's going on? You catch up. It's almost like no time passed. So there's, a, there's some really great elements to it. But you know, at the end of the day, when you get 20, 30 years down into your career, you're looking around going, God, all my friends have left and my other friends have all moved on to other things and they've raised families and now they're getting to travel and I'm still raising a 10 year old. So, you know, it's give and take. And I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I would change anything because I wouldn't, I would not do it any different than I've done it, but there are certainly payoffs and there are certain downsides to, the, to that kind of life and the, and the choices I made. Well, tell us about some of the work that you're most proud of and, and some of your works that you're not so proud of. Well, not so proud of. I, I'm not sure I have any of those because everything I've done, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change for the world. You know, there's some movies I've made that were total crap and they were money jobs. And the thing about uh, when I say money jobs, it, this is a business. I, you got to make a living. You're not always going to do the job or the movie or the idea or the project that feeds your soul. You got to make a living. So you know, to say that I'm only going to do things that are, have social impact or things that I love or whatever, that's nonsense. You're only going to do the things that can make you a living. So there are lots of projects I've worked on that I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of doing, but I'm not like, I loved working on that. I thought it was an amazing piece of material, amazing people. I would do it all over again. You know, there's some of those moments where I'm like, ah, I'm kind of would not really proud of that, but I'll go on my resume until I can put something else or on my credits until I can put something else in that slot. Things I'm proud of making. I mean, there's a lot of movies that I've made that I've worked on, some of which I made as an executive. I mean, probably one of the most exciting movies I ever worked on that I really had a profound impact on my thinking as a 30 something year old was a movie called Tuesdays with Maury, which was a, mo a movie about Maury Schwartz, who was a real person, actually. It was a book written by Mitch Album about a man who contracted ALS. And it was about his relationship with an old student and at, in the latter two years of his life as he was dying. And, you know, and Jack Lemon was the lead in it and sitting on the set watching old movies at lunch with Jack Lemon, like some like it hot and the apartment movies he was in one of the production designer, Michael Reba brought him in at lunch and we'd sit around and watch him with Jack and Jack would tell stories on the set of what it was like working with Walter Matthau and what it was like working with Tony Curtis and how much he disliked. He never really said he disliked her, but Marilyn Monroe, 
he just, when someone asked him what it was like working with her, he said, he just squinted his eyes and said, she was a good self-promoter and then went on to the next thing. So, you know, those, that's probably the movie that I'm the most proud of that I made throughout my career. And it was an amazing experience. It's an amazing piece of material and some amazing people came together to make it. And it won a bunch of awards and did really well. And that's not why I love it. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of pretty much everything I've ever made. Some things, you know, I made a, I worked on a mini series with Halle Berry where when I got the script, it was a, it was a four hour. We were given a pile of money to make it. We just shoot us a bunch of days. And I just remember thinking to myself, how are we going to get this movie in the can? There is not enough money for the appetite that's on the page. And somehow we delivered it. So there's, it kind of runs the gamut. It's, it's material like Tuesdays with Maury that changes your thinking about life and working with Jack Lemon and the stories of being on the set with him, watching his old movies to waking up one day and going, I got two hours of sleep because I can't figure out how to get this movie in the can based on the script that's sitting on my desk and the pile of money the network wants to give me. And then figuring out how to put those pieces together. And there's literally no one on the planet, but me and two other executives at Harpo who actually know what we had to do to get that movie in the can. So you know, it's, it's a, it's a weird and strange business that I don't know that anybody really has any way of quantifying, you know, what it is, how it works or what it does, but somehow the art comes together and commerce figures out how to support that art. And it turns into content that we all pay, you know, whatever, $11 or $15 to go watch and, and, or we pay $19 a month to watch it on Netflix. Well, you also wrote a book. So tell us about that book and why you decided to write it and how the listeners can pick it up. Well, the book is, it's called The Hollywood Accounting and you can buy it on Amazon. It's, it's available in Kindle and hard copy. And the, the, I wrote the book. The book is me telling the story uh, to an internet millionaire sitting at dinner. He wants to invest in a movie and I'm consulting for this guy and explaining to him as an investor you, here's what you can expect. Here's how the movie business works. Here are the thing, here are the pitfalls that come. And I tell it through the story of an experience, uh, which is a amalgamation of a lot of different people I've worked with and movies I've worked on over the years where the whole thing fell apart and the investors lost all their money. And at the end of the day, the investors wind up contributing 20 some million dollars to a movie that never saw, you know, more than I think maybe a hundred screens. And as far as it wound up getting exhibited in movie theaters on a hundred screens, it made no money. I think it made maybe six or $700,000 gross. And uh, they spent 20 some million dollars making it. And I was, I'm telling this story from the angle of if you're going to invest in this movie, here's how the movie business works. And the point of the book is to, to is two things is to tell a story about if you're an investor Here's, here's what you can expect in the movie business. Here's how the economics work. Here's how you take $100 million at the box office that you read about in the newspaper and how that $100 million grinds down to the filmmaker being in the red and not getting paid anything other than the fee they earned in the front end because the exhibitor takes half and the distributor takes 30% of that and they take marketing costs against it and they take the cost of the picture against it and you're upside down. You hear about it all the time, the Hollywood accounting, right? There's nothing sleazy, illegal, or dishonest about Hollywood movie accounting. It's in your agreement as a filmmaker. It, it, it's, it's quantified. It, it, they tell you exactly how you're going to get paid and how that calculation happens. So it's just a calculation where 
if you're the investor, you're the filmmaker, you're at the bottom of the pile. So when they start squeezing the lemon out of that, out of that juice, I mean, seeing the, the juice out of that lemon, there's nothing left when it comes time for the filmmaker. So get as much money as you can up front. And, you know, probably not a great idea to be investing in movies unless somebody else is going to pay for it. So that's the point of the book. And it is an amalgamation of, of a lot of different characters I worked with. Some of them are fictional. In fact, most of them are fictional. And, and some of them are just a conglomeration of five or six or seven different people that I've worked with over the years that have a lot of really strange proclivities. And it was an interesting, you know, it led to an interesting experience working with those folks and sort of making up the stories about how we did it. So it was fun. It was more of a cautionary tale to folks who want to get involved in the movie business on, an, on the investment side to say, here's how this business really works. And here's an example of a bunch of investors who wound up um, getting screwed. And honestly, those guys actually wound up being criminals themselves. And I think some of them actually went to jail at one point. Well, talk about any current or upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about. Well, at the moment, I, I wrote another book, which is, it, it's, the, the title of the book is a Hollywood, oh my God, I can't remember the name of my own darn book. Um, it, anyway, I'll tell you what the point of the book is, and I'll, I'll come back to the title in a second. Um, the book is about how, if you're a, a young person graduating from film school, or you just got out of high school or, or college or whatever, and you want to come work in Hollywood, you want to work as a writer, director, actor, crew, producer, work in corporate, there is no place where you can drop a resume and say, hey, how do I get this job? Hire me. I want to do something involved in marketing, production, camera, grip, electric, directing, acting, whatever. There's no place to really do that. So what the book does is it teaches folks who are new to the industry exactly how you identify the shows, you kind of shows you want to work in, get into your vertical so that you understand whether you want to make film, TV, reality, drama, half-hour sitcom, whatever you want to make, do the research about those people using um, a series of databases. You're going to research who those people are, who they're connected to, who's real, who's not, and then how do you connect to them? And how do you build a network? And what's the language that we use in the industry? And who has money? And who hires people? And how does the how is the industry structured? Because if you're new to the industry, you're not going to go to Warner Brothers and pitch ideas. You're not going to go to Columbia Pictures and pitch ideas. You're going to go to the producers who have overhead deals at Warner's and Columbia and Sony and TriStar and Paramount and Netflix and Amazon Studios. Those are the places you're going to go. You're going to go to those producers. Well, you're going to have to know who those producers are, who works with them, who works for them, and who the hiring managers are. So I teach people how to research that information and how to get connected to those people so that you can be a referral. The only way you're going to get a job in Hollywood, your first job, is get referred by someone who's already in the industry. And the only way you're going to do that is to, be, to impress those people. And there's a way to do that. And I teach people how exactly to do that. And it's a book, it's available, it's digital. It comes with, there's a $27 book. There's also a Q&A session for eight weeks where you learn about some of this, how this works. You can ask a million questions if you want. And then there's a community to get connected to other people like yourself. Um, and you can find that on career.timtortora.com. And my last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. So you can go to career.timtortora.com, check out the book. And then um, get involved in that way and figure out 
exactly how you're going to get yourself hired, integrated, and networked into the business. This is a business of networking. And if you're not comfortable with that, then uh, you're going to have to figure that out because that is the job. Well, you just gave out your website. So give out your full contact information, social media. How can people follow you and keep up with everything that you're doing? Well, the best thing to do is to go to uh, timtratora.com. And in the top right, there's a link for all of the different social channels from Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And you can go check out whatever that is. And all of that really mirrors what's going on on my website. But when you subscribe to those different places, you can see the information being uh, fed into your whatever your channel is, whatever you, wherever you follow. So the best place to find me is at timtratora.com. And um, just select whatever social channel you want. And uh, if you want to get on the list to see the new stuff, the new articles, I publish two a month, typically, and you can get those fed to you twice a month you, on the first and the third Tuesday of every month, we release new content. And it's about the business of Hollywood. What is it really like? How do deals get put together? How do actors go to casting sessions? You know, if you go to a casting session, if you're an actor and you show or an actress and you show up at some casting session at, at, that's at some producer's house, the likelihood is you're not there to be casting. You're likely there for something entirely different. If you want to go to a real casting session or what, what's the expectation of a real casting session, you're going to be in a commercial environment. You're going to have a receptionist likely be there. You're going to see a dozen other women and men who look exactly like you because they're looking for a type. That's how it begins. And then you're going to see them sitting in the room. You're then going to get interviewed by the director or the casting director or the casting associate. And there's always going to be you and somebody else in the room in addition to the person you're casting for. And sometimes it'll just be video, but there's always going to be someone on the other side of a door within 10 feet of where you're sitting. So if you're in a room, in a hotel room, by yourself, with a director, with an actor, I mean, with a producer, that's not a legitimate casting environment. And that's the kind of thing I teach people. It's like, what does this really look like? What should you expect and what should you be careful of? And it's from distribution to how do you sell your movies? I mean, casting, what's a casting session like? If you're a guy or a girl or a woman who owns a piece of material, you know, you, you made your movie, what do you do? You got to go find a distributor. Okay. Are you going to take a minimum guarantee? You need to have someone give you money. Otherwise it's not a legitimate deal. If you're going to, if you're going to sell your screenplay or you're going to sell your book, you need to collect a, an option. You need a fee. You need to get paid. That fee can be $500. It can be $500,000 and anything in between, but you need to be paid something. Nothing gets done for free in this business. So um, I sort of sketch out what that looks like. It's a business like anything else. And here's what you can expect. So if you want to get on that list, just, you know, subscribe to it and you'll get those. Um, you'll get our content every two weeks. Give us some final thoughts to close it out. Final thoughts. You know, my final thought goes back to what I'm doing now, which is working with young filmmakers and, and getting integrated and getting connected to the business. Um, the, the best advice I give to anyone who's coming here, who's coming to Hollywood, who wants to make a living. And if you want to work in Hollywood, you really do have to live in Los Angeles. You can do it in New York, but you really do need to live in Los Angeles. You got to figure out a way to make that work. So my best advice is if you're going to come here and you're an actor or director or writer, whatever, find a way to get a job in production. Don't take a job as a secretary or a receptionist at some other business that's unrelated to Hollywood. 
If you can get a receptionist or secretary job at a management firm or a studio or a producer, fabulous. Don't take a bartending job. Don't take the waitressing job. Those are jobs that will pay you and they may pay you quite well, but the likelihood that you'll actually be learning about the industry and getting connected to the people who can give you a job is very low. There's not going to be a circumstance where you're handing a martini to a director or a producer and they go, oh my God, you need to be in my movie. Are you an actor? It's just not going to happen. It has happened. It does happen. But the likelihood it's going to happen for you is very, very low. So I say to people, if you're going to come here, come here, find a job as an assistant somewhere in production or at a studio where you can meet the people, understand the landscape, learn the language, learn the custom, learn the players in town, and then build a career out from there. That's my biggest advice to people. Good advice right there. Ladies and gentlemen, timtartara.com. Make sure you check him out. If you want to get into the movie business, he's the man to talk to. Be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to all of your actor and actress friends too, so they can learn all about the movie business from Tim Tartora. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. And listeners, go to the Google Play Store if you're an Android user and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast. Thank you for your time, Tim. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. Dream.